0: Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the March 25th, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Happy Norus, everyone, and happy birthday to someone special I know who turned 17 today. Yep, just a reminder, this is Community Radio All. Now, today, my first guest is going to be uh, was just just arranged. I'm waiting for the call to come in. Uh, It is going to be Greg Palast. He's my favorite muckraker on this planet, and he'll be calling it in as soon as I get the call. I'll switch it off and he'll be talking. He'll be connecting the the British Petroleum to the Exxon Valdez catastrophe. I'm going to be right back. We're going to tune him in in just a moment. Thank you for staying with us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying tuned. We do have the man of the half hour here on the show. My first guest is Greg Paust, who's been keeping track of the I'm going to call it the provenance of oil distribution, the world round, and we'll hone in on the Exxon Valdez spill on this day after the 25th anniversary. Actually, for the next uh, 25 years, it's going to be the anniversary of the the uh, spill because the spill is just keeps on giving. So, uh, And I just want you to all pay attention. What is that? Lewd and crude smell. Well, that is the spill and we're going to take it up. Native son of San Fernando Valley, educated at the University of Chicago. This is Greg Paust. In the beginning, there was Bush.com and Poust has continued to investigate all kinds of sordid activities toward which most of us turn a blind eye until he dredges up the gory details. A freelance journalist appearing in The Nation, Harper's, Rolling Stone, Democracy Now!, British Broadcasting Corporation, as well as British newspaper, The Guardian and the Observer. Greg Powell's books include The Best Democracy Money Can Buy and Armed Madhouse and Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, How to Steal an Election in Nine Easy Steps. And the, all of them actually pertain to what's going to be rolling out to, all the way to 2016. So it's all required reading, folks. Today, Greg's Greg Powell's entire focus... Is on all the work he's been doing, following the foot and fingerprints left behind by British Petroleum and Exxon Petroleum companies. He comes us to comes to us today from New York City. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Greg Pallas.
1: Glad to be with you again, Claudia.
0: Well, so you're you're busy now. I don't know if where have you been doing your latest investigative work. Have you have you been along the shoreline in Alaska, or you've been yes. in the the, the um, the uh, file cabinets all over the world.
1: File cabinets, shorelines, you name it. I uh, was hunting down, in fact, I have just released a, um, a little DVD, or it's pre-released before commercial release. If you go to gregpalace.com, uh, a DVD with my opens with my investigation of British petroleum from around the world. And I have to tell you, it's the 25th anniversary of the Exxon Valdez crack-up. And I, before I was an investigative reporter, I worked for a living. I was an investigator, and I was in charge of the Exxon Valdez investigation of the fraud charges. And uh, out of my several volumes of documents, my conclusion, after digging in for three years into the, into the uh, crack-up, is that while Exxon's name was on the ship, and they get the most blame and the most cost, the real culprit is British Petroleum, BP the guys that gave us then the Deepwater Horizon disaster.
0: That's a gift that keeps on giving, a disaster yeah, that keeps so on I was
1: Actually, I just flew up to Alaska to uh, about uh, into the uh, Prince William Sound where the Exxon Valdez cracked up, and uh, with some experts with me, I uh, just went into the rivulets, dig down, and, and you can pick up hunks of crude from the Exxon Valdez disaster. They said nature's cleaned it up. It's 25 years later, guys. Nature is not a toilet that you can poop into and just flush and it goes away. That stuff is still there, and, and it's not just any oil. I know that it's Exxon oil because the experts that, uh, check the chemical tags on it. So we know it's still Exxon's oil. Then I flew down to the Gulf Coast, and I know that, once again, the BP and the Obama administration have said, oh, nature's taking care of it. You can find tar mats from the deep water horizon, which are big as sofas that are hitting the beaches out at the Gulfport uh, off the coast of Mississippi and, and Alabama. Anyone who goes swimming uh, there right now is um, just asking for uh, a toxic drenching. So this stuff is still there. And in both cases, Deepwater Horizon and Exxon Valdez, the unnamed culprit, the big culprit of the Exxon the... Valdez is British Petroleum BP.
0: And British Petroleum as you're mentioning, and folks can follow Greg's amazing work, because I mean, muckraking is as we've talked covered this in some other uh, chapters on Ask a Leader since I've had you on in 2012. Greg is that uh, the the muckraking is expensive, and you'll that's why it's important <laughs> to watch uh, Palast, p a l a s t dot com is it's it's expensive to do it, and it it reveals more than we're going to find anywhere else. So in your work, you have found that British Petroleum's fingerprints on, in the Val- Exxon Valdez catastrophe, and that's the word I use, not advisedly, it fits folks, it's not a tragedy, it's a catastrophe. All Everything sort of caved in on uh, the world as we knew it around that area, is that you're looking at a, a provision among several kinds of provisions. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with from uh, just getting a glimpse at your recent work is that containment facility or the containment infrastructure or backup that BP had assured uh, all of the, the Alaska coastal authorities and the petrochemical overseers that BP had in place all the containment equipment necessary were uh, something untoward happened to any, uh, any of the fleet arriving to the refinement. Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, it's real simple. It's not rocket science to stop an oil spill. See, understand, ships run aground. We just had a tanker run aground in Galveston this week. As we speak, we have a tanker that's run aground. As soon as the tanker ran aground in Galveston, the, uh, the, the port of Galveston ran. What you do is you, put a, you basically put a rubber around it and you suck it out. And then you put what's called a rubber skirt, which is called boom, you surround the oil, which floats on water, and you suck it out with what are called skimmer ships. Now, in Galveston, when it hit, immediately, Port of Galveston put 69,000 feet of rubber boom around that stricken tanker.
0: That's, that's and horizontal. And put nearly
1: uh, 30 containment ships to to suck the oil out that was floating on the water. It didn't have to destroy the entire Texas coastline. So then what happened... In Alaska, the answer is that the Exxon Valdez hit Bly Island, Bly Reef. Now, we should have there should have been maybe a little picture in the newspaper the next day, and then we'd forget about it, because at Bly Reef, there was supposed to be a whole bunch of this rubber skirt being st- stored there in case of an accident. There was supposed to be an emergency containment vessel right there, a pilot lighthouse right there, and a full-time emergency crew. You... This setup, it's like having a fire department in the city, like in the valley there. And I was just, by the way, visiting uh, my old uh, home in the valley uh, last week. Um, you know, you've got fire departments, and you've got fire trucks and firemen, and it's expensive because they sit there waiting for something to happen, but you have to have it just There's in case.
0: A contingency so, plan. Yeah.
1: So it's same with an oil tanker. It has to have with it a containment ship. Nearby, there has to be one, or floating with it. In fact, in, in Alaska now, they, they, they go with the ships, but there's supposed to be one. They, so basically, BP said that they, had, that they had a containment ship, that they had the emergency equipment, that they had the emergency crew. They completely fabricated it. It was a complete lie, but they figured, who's going to look out in the middle of the Alaskan sound? The only people out there are, are American natives, and no one listens to them anyway. And oh, so gosh. when the ship Please. hit, it hit exactly right where there was supposed to be this emergency uh, uh, vessel and the equipment and the crews were supposed to be there, and they weren't there. Well, the crews were there, I should say. The Chugach natives had been hired and trained by BP in, in, for an emergency to handle the equipment. They, they could drop from helicopters into the water to, to control the boom. They, they were real experts at this stuff. They knew the sound because they lived there, and uh, but after BP hired BP hired them because in return for being hired to uh, man the emergency crews, the natives turned over the land for the port of Valdez. It was owned, you know, it wasn't just no one's land. It was owned by the natives. They gave it to British Petroleum in return for the jobs, and then once they got the land, and they got trained, and they had the first inspections they fired them because they who's going to know and who's going to care if an if, uh, Indian complains, right? So,
0: so no one so these, was on the employ then. They were employed right. and then they were unemployed. So so there's nothing there in place.
1: So, yeah, so what happened was they, the natives actually came out on the beach and were wondering why the ship was heading towards their, their village. Tatitlick village is right there. Oh, my goodness. So they, they were actually watching the ship come in to the reef. They thought at first it was they said, oh, this is some weird test. Well, it wasn't a test. It smashed into the reef. So and they were helpless because the the equipment that they had was taken away from them, and uh, there was nothing that they could do. And uh, so so there, literally, the ship hit where there should have been all the equipment right on that spot. You would have never even heard of the Exxon Valdez. It would have been a page. It's kind of like this Galveston spill. You know, it's one day where you get a couple, of, you get a one or two days of pictures and news, and that would have been it. You'd forget about it. No, one will remember this Galveston spill a year from now. The Exxon Valdez should have been the same thing, uh, a spill localized and, and cleaned up. That's British Petroleum, and they lied. They lied systematically. Now, who is supposed to be on top of this? When there was a government inspector named Dan Lawn who, said, I, who wrote letters saying, I think that their whole system is a phony. It doesn't exist. It's a fraud. It's a pretend. And every time we go to inspect, they get tipped off in advance that we're going to inspect. And they, had, they used their political power to have this guy fired. You have to understand that the head of British Petroleum in Alaska, a guy named Bob Malone, was also the uh, co-chairman of the Bush, uh, George W. Bush election campaign. They, they're politically connected. They, they know how to get rid of the people in their way. There was one, uh, the captain of the Port of Valdez, a guy named uh, Captain James Whittle. He complained that they didn't have the equipment, that it was unsafe. In case what, it was happened no. and they, what happened to him? What happened to the they captain? They, they fired him. As soon as he wrote a letter, uh, you know, letter saying, listen, we've got to do something about this, their response was to fire him. and that, Then they said, if you say anything publicly, we're going to release this file saying that you were sleeping with your secretary in your office at the port. A complete fabrication. And, um, and, then, uh, and they threatened him that he had to destroy his files or they take away his pension, I have a copy of those files. So I know exactly what he told the company before the Exxon Valdez hit. And then another guy, Chuck Hamill, who is the shipping broker for BP, is a wealthy guy, so he took the Concord to London. Before, again, this is before the Exxon broke up. He took the Concord to London because he thought it was such an emergency to immediately get to BP headquarters to say, look, my God, we've got an emergency situation in Alaska. There's no equipment out there. And right. what they did was... They hired uh, ex-CIA spooks to break into his house, tap his phones, intercept his mail, and then when he wasn't—they weren't uh, fixing the situation—he went to, to speak to Congressman George Miller of California, and they they ran to, to eavesdrop on his discussions with the congressman. They ran a um, they ran a toy truck, listen to this, a toy truck with a microphone in it, through the air conditioning system in a building in Washington, to eavesdrop. Uh, And and the the way we know that, they got caught because they happened to run the truck over the offices of the U.S. Navy SEALs.
0: And And the SEALs
1: freaked out and arrested these guys. They thought it was a KGB trying to listen in on 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 the U.S. Navy SEAL operation.
0: Now, Greg, this is a string of steps. How on earth are you going to document this? How do you know?
1: Well, as I said, I was the head of the investigation, so I have all the documentation. And in the case of the break-in uh, of the eavesdropping on the congressman and the whistleblower, uh, those guys are actually arrested. And the judge uh, Sporkin in Washington said that BP's activities were, he said, well, and this is a quote from the judge, were reminiscent of Nazi Germany, the way they deal with whistleblowers. The, and uh, we the... Um, the case of the uh, whistleblower of the captain of the Port of Valdez, I have those documents, and we put those out. We gave those all to the court. But then we had to pull back because um, Exxon said, if you don't, because remember, I was working for these natives, for the people of Alaska, as the investigator. Okay. And, they and retained Exxon, you. Yeah. Yes. And Exxon said, the, listen, Palest, if you uh, file the formal charges, of fraud, will never give a penny to the natives. These people were desperate.
0: They were holding them hostage,
1: and they were really holding us hostage. So we, so we, in the end, they basically were willing to agree to a charge of letting a, a, a drunken skipper um,
0: take the command phone.
1: a ship, and that they don't mind because that just makes it a case of human. So Exxon, it becomes a case of human frailty. You know, gee, it's. It, they did the wrong thing, but um, but nevertheless, it's just you know human frailty. CNN tonight is going to have Hay- Captain Hazelwood on again to apologize, which is baloney because he was below decks; he wasn't running the ship. Right? I mean, he you know the truth is, if he's a captain, he's responsible. You can't be drunk when you're going out of port. You can't be asleep when you're going out of port. But um, so it wasn't you know he is responsible as a captain, so he should apologize. Uh, but. That's not the cause of the disaster. Is BP's failure? It should, yeah, ships crack up, but that doesn't mean that they destroy an entire coastline.
0: Wow. Well, for those of you who've just joined KUCI, we, were, uh, we had originally scheduled a different guest that I posted on the website. Uh, fortunately unfortunately, fortunately for you, we have Greg Pallast on. Unfortunately, the other guest uh, is going to get her voice back. We'll reschedule her. Greg Pallast, muckraker of choice, is here talking and uh, connecting the dots with British Petroleum and the Exxon Valdez disaster that occurred 25 years and one day ago. And uh, the fingerprints are, and he's, he's given us a string of responsible parties affiliated with the British Petroleum and the, we'll call it the Bush family petrochemical portfolio that were stifling uh, dissent, um, withdrawing infrastructure and uh, it's just another uh, bait and switch for another Native American uh, tribe. It's sort of, it's what is, and there's even, I guess we could call this Sex, Lies, and Slurry Seal. So uh, if that's your next uh, blast. And uh, for those who I want to know, how can you follow Greg Palace more carefully? I, I gave you the wrong website. It's really gregpalast.com. The other one comes to you in German. So g-r-e-g-p-a-l-a-s-t.com. And so he's in the middle now of stringing along all the associations, uh, those that were trying to blow the whistle, those whose whistles were taken out of their mouths, and those who were taking the whistles and putting them away for storage. So we're talking now about the, the British Petroleum file we, after Judge Sporkin uh, was dealt with. And um, let's see, where do we leave off here? Uh, well, there's, there's pick it up plenty.
1: Um, you know, I don't want to let Exxon off the hook, but everyone knows uh, that Exxon's culpable because their name is on the ship, which, you know, British Petroleum uh, avoided putting their names on ships, so they put their name on the Deepwater Horizon platform um and in uh, if you go by the way to gregpaul.com you can see a little trailer of vultures and vote rustlers so it's worth your 95 seconds and um, you know i have a pre-release my i have a not for profit investigative reporting foundation like you say this stuff is expensive because i have to go around the world i had to go up to Alaska i had to go down to the gulf and then i had to go to the nation of azerbaijan which is in the Caspian Sea if you don't know where azerbaijan is you don't worry Uh, It's one of those uh, new nations pooped out by the Soviet Union when it collapsed. And it's uh, what I call the Islamic Republic of BP. Now, why would I go to Azerbaijan? The answer is that 17 months, I got a tip, that 17 months before the Deepwater Horizon exploded, another BP platform also blew out in the Caspian Sea off the nation, off the coast of Baku, uh, in Azerbaijan. And for the same reason, BP uses, unlike other companies, BP uses this cheap cement process for plugging wells, and the cement failed in the Gulf. Well, they knew it, and they said they were surprised. Well, they couldn't be surprised, because a year and a half earlier, the same thing happened where the cement, this cheap cement that they used, blew out in the Caspian Sea, and they covered it up. So I I flew to uh, Asia and uh, got uh, into this uh, kind of uh, oil dictatorship. Unfortunately, I was arrested and thrown out of the country. Though I did get some film out, I have a, uh, and you'll see it in my film um, if you go to GregPals.com. It's the uh, where I'm under because they took away my camera, but they didn't take away my pen, which had a camera in it. So I Shh, got. Don't the, give it away.
0: You got to keep yeah, that Yeah, I got the
1: information oh, all the M- plenty is, but this is but this is how British Petroleum operates not just in Alaska, not just in the Gulf, worldwide. And last week uh, the Obama administration released allowed uh, British Petroleum to get back into business in the Gulf and gave them a new tract to drill right near where the deep water horizon sank. My goodness. Yeah. <sighs>
0: Well, I guess you're just taking all this bi criminal um, genre out and putting it in the into the nonfiction category, Greg. With all this this work, and so uh, for folks, it's again. I want to mention it's gregpalace.com. I'm not. It's not because I'm a shill. It's because we're not getting these sources published everywhere else, just as with Greg's investigative reporting around spoiling elections in this country. Uh, yes. it's, uh, it's the same thing as happening. It's the spy who came in from the crude. I think that's a new moniker I've got for you,
1: Greg. I'll, I'll, I'll steal that one. It would steal you know, Yeah, I mean, one of the problems we have, the story of British Petroleum um, and, it's, and the games it played in Alaska – the fact that it covered up a, uh, a prior blowout before the Deepwater Horizon in the Caspian Sea—all this stuff—I was able to report prime time in all throughout Europe on BBC television, British and British television, and European television. South America it went out, Africa, Asia but not in Canada, not in the United States of America. And part of it, frankly, is like if I'm on the petroleum broadcast system, PBS, it's a, the official sponsor of the PBS NewsHour is Chevron Corporation. And you cannot put anything on PBS or Frontline or anything like that if you're going to take a shot at uh, the big oil companies which fund, uh, which fund uh, PBS. Under- the, uh, BBC, by the way, is not, does not funded by... Any corporate money, I work with BBC, it is purely subscriber-funded. It's not even by the government. People don't understand. It's, it's, the, it's the viewers that, that support BBC, and that's it. British we Broadcasting? Don't take any corporate money.
0: British Broadcasting is strictly uh,
1: subscriber-supported? F- strictly subscriber, but I have to say you're not allowed to have a TV in Britain unless you pay your BBC license, okay. £100. So okay, you ought to do this it. when you do your fund drives. If someone's listening and they don't pay... We have little radio trucks, and we find you, and we kick in your door and take your TV.
0: Or, or your radio. We, we want <laughs> or for your radio, radio stations too. to segue radios, because <laughs> they're not streaming us on television, although they could be on their laptop. but so And for those of you, as I said, who've joined us, we're talking to muckraker Greg Pallast, who's Connecting the dots with British Petroleum and the Exxon Valdez catastrophe, 25 years and one day later, and uh, it, he's even bringing uh, the Caspian Sea. Now, the Caspian Sea is also salt water, so there. I was thinking some right. of the lakes were some of the um, the uh, some of the petrochemical activities uh, uh, occurring uh, in the the uh, Eastern European and uh, Western Asian uh, theater. Uh,
1: yeah. East, well, Europe. the Caspian Sea used to have was the source of all our caviar. Uh, but that's the reason the price of caviar has now gone from 10 bucks of, uh, uh, an ounce to $2,000 an ounce is because it's all been slimed with BP's oil. Because um, as they punch the holes down, uh, of course, raising the price of caviar does not make me cry. What does make me upset is the poisoning of this massive area. You should see it. People are dying of, of all. Uh, the, the The cancer rate on the Caspian shore is completely out of sight. That's BP. If you go down to uh, um, the the Exxon uh, refinery down at the Gulf Coast and where BP also operates, it's known as Cancer Alley, and that's because of that oil that's been allowed to just pour out. And I have to say, BP, when you know when we talked about earlier, if you just joined, as Greg Pallas did I was talking about how British Petroleum was more responsible than Exxon for the disaster in Alaska because it's their job to. To make to sure the oil didn't leave the ship. Okay. You just, and now, but we saw the same thing in the Deepwater Horizon. When I saw the deep water Horizon blow up, when I saw that, that rig on fire, I looked at TV, and the first thing I noticed is that there was no, once again, Nobody there? no rubber skirts surrounding the rig, so that's why the oil hit 600 miles of beach, no rubber skirts surrounding the rig, there were no skimmer ships, there was, some, for some reason, fireboats. Which were spritzing water on an oil fire? They might as well have just been, you know, hitting it with seltzer bottles or something. It's meaningless.
0: Well, the Gulf is entirely different, too. It is a much more uh, a, a docile kind of uh current yeah. there, so that that would have been containment sort of classic st- study. But it um,
1: yeah, and they you know, once worked. again, by the way, BP did the same thing. They said they had the equipment because you're not allowed to operate. It's like you can't uh, have a, a town without a fire department. If you have a big stadium event in, in Los Angeles, you're required to have ambulances nearby. That's a, re- that's a legal requirement, which makes sense. You can't operate tankers, oil rigs, without emergency equipment in case something goes wrong, because something does go wrong. BP got away with it in Alaska, so once again, they lied about the equipment in the Gulf. By time Obama called a national emergency, the Navy had 400 miles of rubber boom. They could have surrounded that. If, if BP said, look, we have to admit we don't have this stuff, please save us, we could have had the Navy out there in two hours with the boom running around the, the oil rig in concentric circles had 400 miles of the stuff uh, and prevented almost all the oil from hitting the beaches. Instead, it just ran wild. By the time uh, BP uh, you know, said, we can't handle this, and Obama ordered the Navy in, the oil slick in the Gulf was 400 uh, four hundred square miles. Well, you, you,
0: know,
1: you made there it. There's nothing you can do.
0: Yeah. That, well, that's the say here. Nothing you can do then. I'm sure listeners are leaning forward, uh, overwhelmed with the sense of helplessness. Greg, what do you suggest a course of action for John Q. Citizen and Jane Q. Citizen?
1: Well, number one, if... if someone's picking your pocket, the first thing you want to do is it's catch them at it, and you want to know what it is. So that's why I am pushing so hard for people to go to gregpalace.com read the material. In fact, I have a book on, which, com, which is about my investigations in the Caspian and, and in Alaska, called Vulture's Picnic. And It has my stories of growing up in the Valley, too. Uh, but uh, so if you, Vulture's Picnic gives the full story, but we have this new film, too. But So first, you have to be informed. The second is don't believe the jive. And we, you know, the, the, the lines from the oil company, they love that drunken skipper hits reef stuff with the Exxon Valdez Captain Hazel. It's all his fault. No, it isn't. Not at all. He shouldn't have been drunk, but that has nothing to do with whether the, the tanker cracked up. By the way, Exxon itself had the, uh, what's called the Raycast radar system, was not working. Um, it would not, they would have never theirs. hit the reef if the radar system were working. The guy's just looking out the front window of a tanker. That's how he was trying to guide it, because his radar was out. It was ridiculous. Um, And the answer is, these guys have to pay the price. And one price to pay is, you know what, BP? You crapped all over the Gulf Coast and over Alaska. Get out. We don't want you. Instead, Obama did this whole big thing, Oh, we're not trying to keep British Petroleum out of America. Yeah, we should. They're criminal, rogue, operation and i don't say that just you know it's not some type of heated hyperbole i worked as an investigator for the united states justice department in racketeering and fraud that was my job and and then i was brought in on the exxon case by the owners of the shoreline and i gotta tell you when i look at bp's operation here and when i look at it ab- uh, abroad this company should not be allowed the right to operate in american waters and that's the other thing we got to tell companies if you destroy our coastline you don't get another chance to do it again and believe me that will focus their attention because oil companies want access to oil they don't care about the fines they don't care about paying out on lawsuits as far as they're concerned that's a permit that's a permit to pollute we have to say you are out of here if you know what if i'll tell you something claudia you drop a button you you drop just a quart of oil in, uh, all over the carpet of an apartment you're renting in the valley you pay you won't get a lease well you not only will pay they'll throw you out right not gonna, they're gonna say, hey listen we'll give you another apartment that's you know go right ahead no you're out same rule should apply to the oil companies
0: well greg we've we're run out of time um mm-hmm. i I know uh, George Miller, who figured in this sort of succession of overseers of the resources of policymaking, he's now retiring from Congress. And so and we don't have the same portfolio in the Obama administration that we had in the two Bush administrations. That's Papa and and son Bush. But uh, it's pretty amazing that uh, how to take a whole portfolio of one large corporation out of there. I, I know we'll try to vote with our consumerism, but it's a, it's a much taller order, and I'm hoping that you'll be posting on gregpalace.com some kinds of uh, prescriptive takeaways for us so that our sense of helplessness uh, can be directed to something, because I know you're anticipating another disaster. I sure as heck am, and so uh, yeah. I, and I, I, it's, a, it's enough already. So I, I want to thank you, Greg, for being on the show today.
1: Okay, okay, so we'll come back for the, to discuss the next disasters well, as they happen.
0: Well, I don't, well, I'm afraid we're going to, but I want to keep this disaster in front of everybody so that we can uh, vent our frustration and our uh, certainly well-earned uh, indignation over all this. Greg, thanks for, for being on the show today. You're the best. Thank Bye. you. Take care. Bye. So we're going to take a short break, and then afterward we'll have on John Kabashima, Environmental Horticulture Advisor, with the California Cooperative Extension, talking about how uh, he's toiling all the time to keep all the plants around us healthy and thriving. It's no small task. So, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the station break.
2: No wonder the butter's a shilling a pound See the rich farmer's daughters how they ride up and down
0: You ask them the reason they cry, oh alas There's a war on in France and the cows have no grass Singing honesty's
2: all out of fashion These are the rigs of the time, timey boy
0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for staying tuned. We're back here with Ask a Leader. My next guest is John Kabashima, Environmental Horticultural Advisor and with the uh, California Cooperative Extension, a kind of agricultural homeland security with a jurisdiction that hones in and zooms down to the square inch. Our go-to man has been with the Cooperative Extension for 27 years. His research areas and Pay close attention. It affects all of us folks. His research in areas include insect, disease, weed management, in the total maximum daily loads of landscapes, golf courses, nurseries, municipalities, and at the watershed level. Detection removal of pathogens, pesticides, and nitrates in nursery recycled water systems and an agricultural runoff. He also manages the Master Gardener Volunteer Program, which uses formerly trained volunteers of the UC... Um, the ANR, let's get to that, that acronym shortly, to extend university-based information on gardening and horticulture to the public. I was beneficiary of that last week when I was at the Cal State Fullerton Arboretum sale. Those master gardeners were answering all of our uh, wide-eyed questions. John Kabashima received his Bachelor's of Science in Agricultural Biology at California Polytechnic University at Pomona, his Master's in Pest Management at UC Riverside, and his MBA uh, at Pepperdine University's Irvine campus, and his PhD in Entomology at the University of California, Riverside. He's worked on over 62 publications, some of which are his own books. Welcome to Ask a Leader, John Kabashima.
2: Thank you very much.
0: And uh, welcome. And come September of this year, happy one hundred year anniversary of the cooperative, the Vonda Cooperative Extension Program.
2: And we are also going to have a Science Day on May eighth, which is actually the official date. So go to our ucanr. Edu website, and we'll announce some of the activities. We're going to be using new technology. We're People can use their smartphones and computers to out go outside and actually observe nature and report science observations,
0: which are critical in nailing, literally nailing the bug in the bud. Correct. So, and which is what makes uh, your eradicating these problems, as you say, occur one new problem every forty-five days. So, if it weren't for those people, our neighbors, gardeners. Uh, Back in their yards, uh, monitoring that. Uh, w- weren't for that, you would have much larger problems opening up with much more expensive solutions. Correct. Okay, well, uh, at, we've got more than three hundred campus-based specialists around the state, um, and then at, at ca- the California, the Orange County office is there in Costa Mesa, on Arlington, near the the city hall.
2: Actually, we're just recently started moving all of our facilities to our South Coast Research and Extension Center, which is on Irvine Boulevard, 7601 Irvine Boulevard in Irvine.
0: Near the Great Park? or
2: Near the Great Park. Okay. We're a 200-acre research facility that actually has been there since 1956.
0: Well, so while some of us have been staring at our screens and entertaining ourselves to death, that uh, there's this very diligent force. When I say it's the Homeland Security of the Backyard, I mean that. And I I hope that moniker can... Maybe have a little more traction <laughs> there because it's it's what's happening. And it's I mean the the commercial consequences of these problems opening up our, our ext- um, sectors of of commerce are wiped out. Consumers find the price of any given kind of produce could be skyrocketing or it could be a product not even available. So let's let's go to let's what is the top dog now pestilence. Now, Where, where there's some smaller ones that are just breaking in the press about the Oriental fly where the quarantine is, is taking effect for it incoming produce so that means outgoing as well i'm understanding for la and orange counties Correct. but let's go to the top of the um the list of uh emergent uh problems that you're dealing with right now john Kabeshima.
2: well currently the most important pest that we're working on is a new exotic and invasive species that came in from asia there are two infestations one in the Los Angeles and Orange County area. Uh, now we found a, a more recent find in San Diego County and smaller finds in San Bernardino. However, the majority of the infestation is this small beetle. It's called the Polyphicus shot hole beetle, and it carries a fungus with it. When we found this beetle killing trees back in... Uh, the late uh, 2010-2012, that was the first time this beetle had ever been seen by scientists in North America and same with the fungus. So we used DNA technology to determine that this was actually a new species of beetle and a new species of fungus that could actually attack over a hundred species of trees in 61 families and the list is growing. It's currently doing quite a bit of damage in Orange County. It it really has been devastating to several arboretums. The Huntington Botanical Garden, the UCLA Arboretum, and Los Angeles Arboretums have had fairly s- severe infestations. This has a potential to eventually affect 25 percent of our urban forest and our natural forest, and on the list are several potential agricultural crops, uh, trees, that we have yet to test, but we we think fairly confidently that it might be able to attract persimmons and olives and grapes, etc. So we need to do that research this is a brand new insect and disease we've been working on for about a year. So you can understand there's quite a bit of science that needs to be done before we can really say things definitively.
0: And, John, please, again, the prolific witch beetle? Oh, it's the prolificus, prolificus shot hole borer. Shot hole? Yes. Okay. And okay.
2: unlike other shot hole, a lot of people are familiar with the bark beetles that are killing pines in, in the mountains right. because of the drought. This beetle attacks healthy trees. And that's why it's it's so significant because we have an urban forest that is well irrigated and fertilized. And so this beetle has the potential to establish huge populations in these urban areas and from there move out into the agricultural sector. So it's not only going to affect... Uh, the aesthetics of our urban environment, and also... Well, it's a the public cooling. health. Well, it's a
0: public health. These are lungs, these urban forests.
2: Exactly. And and also, we were talking earlier about carbon sequestration, and these trees are a major way that we're going to take carbon, uh, the CO2 out of the air, and, and sequester that into the trees
0: off mic we were talking about sequestration we're going to talk about that on mic here uh, in the course of the show for those of you who have just joined us you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine streaming live around the world on around raised beds is on the web it's kuci.org my guest is John Kabashima environmental horticultural advisor at you name it in southern california um, uh, affiliated agencies with the cooperative extension and so we're, we're talking about the prolific shot hole boar beetle as the problem uh, that's attacking a, a commerce a public health uh, good common good and uh, so let's move in maybe there's some other ones that you want to bring up in this prime time
2: well we have hundreds of these that are coming in. As I said, we have one new ins- uh, inv- exotic and invasive species coming in every 45 days. It used to be every 60 days. So,
0: Why do you count the, for that increased frequency of new introduction uh, pest?
2: There's more travel. There's more trade. There's a lot larger population. And there's most recently with many of the bark beetles that are attacking a lot of our, our trees movement of firewood. It's, it's become a very serious problem with people cutting wood down that's infested with a pest in one part of the state or another state, and moving it throughout the state, and then the beetles fly out of the logs and infest the local trees. So the saying now is, burn it where you buy it.
0: Okay. What about mulch then? Mulch tr- has a lot of chipped wood from landscaping uh, work. Is that also a problem?
2: That's actually an excellent question because when we're trying to determine what to do with something like this new polyphagous shot hole bore that can kill so many trees in the landscape, we have to deal with the issue of disposal of dead trees. And one of the, the research projects has been looking at the impacts of chipping of of the logs right. into small enough pieces that we can actually kill the beetle. And actually, the research is indicating that that's very effective it if is. it's one inch or smaller.
0: Oh, but hardly is it that, though.
2: Well, if the the equipment is there. It's just the people requesting that that happen will enable people to make the decision to buy the more expensive chippers. The other thing we're concerned about is the fungus. And actually, there are three fungi that we found associated with this that every day we start finding more and more things to look at but there's a fusarium there's a graphium and there's a serocladium fungus and we're trying to tease out exactly what the role of each of them are but we are fairly confident that the fusarium and the graphium are the ones that are killing the trees and we think the serocladium fungus actually competes with other fungi so that the fusarium and the graphium can thrive so our strategies now are you know, to identify these fungi, study their biology, and find a weakness in that biology that we can, we can use to control it. So we're looking now at the impacts of chipping on the fungus, and recently we had several scientists just return from Vietnam. The DNA indicates that our main population in Los Angeles and Orange County is from Vietnam, and uh, the most recently found infestation in San Diego County is from Taiwan. What our scientists did is they go to the country of origin and they try to study the, ah. the beetle in its native environment.
0: With its check and balance. And see bi- if
2: we can find those checks and balances, which would be hopefully biological control organisms, and also to study the organism in its natural environment. And see how it behaves differently than it does here because we're talking Vietnam that climate and now we're talking Southern California and our very different drier climate exactly so one of the things that is is very uh, comforting is that the the fungi fungus in Vietnam actually goes through a complete life cycle of a asexual stage and a sexual stage so think of a mushroom the white mycelium that, that eats away wood that you s- often see in, uh, in, in nature, that's the asexual stage. The mushroom is the sexual stage. Okay. So this is not a mushroom, but just imagine that life cycle. Here we have the asexual stage, we have not found the sexual stage of the fungus yet. So that means that this is not the ideal environment for the fungus.
0: It's in a developmental holding pattern, we don't, and right. you don't know if you've eradicated it possibly. So
2: now we're looking at, at technologies or strategies that we've developed for other organisms, such as solarization or composting, as options that need to be considered when you're chipping and potentially using those chips in, in the landscape.
0: So somebody could be irrigating those chips, and then you could be moving on. You could be giving it the prime conditions for it to advance to the sexual state.
2: Potentially. So and that's
0: why we got to get those monitors in every backyard with exactly. the se- uh, smartphones.
2: And that's why we started the Master Gardener program in California. It actually it It's like the originated. reserve program,
0: the reservists. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And, and,
2: it re- and it originated in Washington state, and they recognized the fact that they had only a few academics and they could not service the whole population of the state. Well it's worse in California. So we have over six thousand master gardeners in California. I have over three hundred forty in Orange County. And these are, are very intelligent, highly trained individuals. And, and they, they have train. such great
0: disposition. So they're exactly. your best your best front person.
2: Right. If you if you want to, to meet a good person, meet someone who likes to garden. Absolutely. And what they do is they go out to the public and they train the public. And we have a hotline that people can... The hotline is? Uh, the hotline is... Let's get the hotline. Because so, right we'll here. put that
0: on the... Oh, you can give it to us. You're the best ah. one. And let's make sure we can do a little uh, public service announcement too uh, sometime today, maybe while we're still here. But uh, So the hotline for anyone to call 24-7 about... What, what do you want to hear on the hotline first before you get well, it?
2: Well, number one... Uh, we have an email hotline and a phone hotline, okay. but the phone hotline is a recorder, and then they'll get back to you. Right. So the email hotline um, is hotline, H-O-T-L-I-N-E, at U-C-C-E-M-G dot C-O-M. So hotline at U-C-C-E-M-G dot com. And the website is www.uccemg.com. dot com. So, the number? So that's, um, well, we, we prefer that they use the email. Okay. And and here's why. It's a nice when, record. When we try to help somebody with a problem, if we have information in writing, the name of the plant, the description of the problem.
0: Maybe a screenshot and the email attachment.
2: And and please, screenshots where the photograph is in focus. Okay. And And we like photographs of, the actual problem, and then the uh, a larger, far away photo of the area, because many problems are a result of cultural pra- improper cultural practices, and the the picture of the overall area gives us an idea of you know what type of situation it's exactly. in. Exactly,
0: data plus,
2: and the the photograph of the actual organism oftentimes will will tell us what it might be but in reality what we recommend is that if they have an insect or a actual disease that they take it into the orange county agricultural commissioner's office and they have an entomologist and a plant pathologist
0: is that in santa Ana?
2: that's in Back city of orange on bristol lane off of glassell
0: okay we can get that address uh, afterward, and yes. that goes on the summary, too, for the podcast, right. so people can go to that as well as the other um, contact information.
2: So what our master gardeners will do is they'll try to use integrated pest management solutions, and that is is centered on proper identification of the pest or the problem. And once you identify the cause, then we can give suggestions about the solutions.
0: We've got tons of things. I'm going to see if we can sort of go through a, a, a list of things uh, that we're talking about. I want quickly find out when um, we're talking about all of your needs here, how is your funding changing? Are you, did you, uh, you obviously had some cutbacks on the state level. You're mostly funded by what, general revenue or are there special district funds that you get from dis- water districts or what, what what, how changeable is your funding from the at, from which sources? And so, are you? I think the sort best way positive. to start
2: ex- to explain that is is by our name. So we're the University of California Cooperative Extension, and UC Cooperative Extension is part of UC Ag and Natural Resources, which is considered the 11th campus of the University of California. Okay. Only we're distributed throughout the state, so we have um, actually 52. County offices throughout the state. We have uh, three colleges at Davis, Berkeley, and Riverside, and nine research stations throughout the state. Our funding uh, comes from three different sources, primary sources, and that's why we're called cooperative extension. So it's uh, USDA, and and that was uh, from the Hat. Uh, well, actually, it's from the Smith-Lever Act. Okay, that cooperative extension was uh, nationally created and then we get state money from the state of california through the uc system and then for a, co- a cooperative extension advisor like myself and my colleagues to be stationed in a county to deal with local problems the county needs to provide funding so that is the main source of funding and then we we go for grants so i i will actually get money from the Department of Food and Agriculture. I might get it from a commodity like an agricultural crop. We have um, additional funding that we get from Orange County. When they have a specific problem that they need addressed quickly, they will actually give us grants to address those issues. So we, we have various sources of funding.
0: So I imagine they change. I imagine the sequestration might have had an impact on some of your budget. And so it's very difficult, I'm sure, for you to f- figure out how much money you're going to have, what, what's the triage of, of these uh, infestations that are uh, coming in. So that, that variability, that's one item. Another item is, do, uh, quickly, the, do you endorse for the, the homeowner that, uh, the use of more native plants to mitigate against some of these infestations? Is that one way to help?
2: Yes and no. Okay. So with the shot hole borer, it actually is is a, a typical example of a new host, I mean, a new pest and a, a new fungus, so a new insect and new fungus. But old host. And it's running into new hosts. It's running into trees it's never seen before, but it has to eat. So it's tasting everything and seeing whether or not it's in a, appropriate food source, and also whether that or not that plant has a defense against it. Okay. So when you go to the native range, many of those trees have evolved over thousands of years with these pests, and, and they've actually managed, the ones that survive... They're have meeting have halfway. ...managed to meet halfway, okay. whereas when we run into a new situation, we have these plants that have no idea or what the heck this is that's attacking them, and they may or may not have a defense against it, and same with the beetle. So we're not... We're not even sure how this beetle is finding some of these trees other than just landing on it and tasting it. And then if it can go through its life cycle on it, then that will become a new host. Okay. So the the host list changes, and that's the first thing we do when a new pest comes in.
0: Okay, well, I'm actually going to save my other questions about uh, sequestering uh Carbon loads for a whole nother day because we want to make sure it's carefully and thoroughly attended to so um I know John Kabashima's time comes. Uh, to this radio interview at a complete premium, so uh, we—I'm not sure if we will have him come back or a surrogate for him who would be uh, almost qualified enough to talk about all these things. But uh, I'm going to have to to bring the program to a close um, after we, the other. Uh, I want to make sure everybody knows about uh, the exchange, the cooperative Exchange at ceorange at ucanr dot edu is one place to go as well. I want to mention there's a job opening for a an cooperative extension of employee, the area vertebrate pest advisor. Correct. So there is there is a, an economic uh, aspect to this uh, discussion today, too. And, uh, yes, John's got his finger in the air for an, one additional thing because he's, he's been this whole time with me in Studio A. Yes, John.
2: Well, I just want to say that on September 27th, I just want to remind everybody that September 27th is the day that the South Coast Research and Extension Center going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary and we're going to have an open house and tours of the research station as demonstration gardens where they can actually see plants as they grow with the names on them and master gardeners there to answer the questions but we advocate native plants and california friendly plants
0: like D- drought tolerant drought depending to- where well, you are in yes. california
2: and how you water, not and
0: yeah, and how you water. So, there's an enormous amount that helping. I, I'm, uh, I'm sort of overwhelmed with where we can go with this because I, um, there I know there's lots of needs for the cooperative extension, and it's biting us in the tush, folks, right now. Uh, any kind of letting up on attention to what's going on, and I know everybody's well-meaning about what they try to, uh, to produce and cultivate in their own backyards or on their decks. I mean, anybody who has dirt is going to be carrying uh, any of these pests and can report back to uh, the home office with the Cooperative Extension. So I want to, as the time draws down, I want to thank John Kabashima for giving us, Dr. Kabashima to me, uh, for uh, giving us premium time today. He's the environmental horticultural advisor, you name it, in Southern California with the Cooperative Extension. John, thank you for being on the show today.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Well, we are going to be uh, winding down here. George Rosales is next with George Had a Hat. I just want to let everybody know that next week I'm going to have on the Natural Resources Defense Council attorney Alex Jackson to cover the political and policy angles of global climate change, then Masters of Fine Arts student Juan David Rubio, will trot out his Spatia, or Spatia pro- project from UCI's music department to be performed on April 4th. At the end of the week, we interview him. It should be anywhere from cool to spectacular, and it's free. You'll just have to tune in next week to learn. And I will have Shay Mahal later on in the month when she's got her th- voice back and uh, all the line of journalists who want to talk to her about her uh, human slavery saga. Uh, we all get to take our turn and talk with her about that. Thank you, everybody, for listening today.